Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 175, An Unholy Alliance. Now, seriously, we have to ask when all this toing and froing with kings and things is going to end. Why can't England just make up her mind and stick with it? Well, I hate to tell you, it's going to be a while before that happens. So in the meantime, let's recap. Last time... At the Battle of Edgecote Moor, Warwick's lieutenants had destroyed Edward's army of saviours, and within two days, Edward's champion in Wales, William Herbert, had been convicted by Warwick on no recognisable authority and executed, along with his brother. Next up, George Neville had chased down the king and taken him captive, along with his closest friend and supporter, William Hastings, and the more reliable of Edward's brothers, Richard of Gloucester the brother that, unlike Clarence, had remained unmoved by Warwick's attempts to recruit him. Warwick had two main aims at this point. One was to force Edward to submit to his greater authority and place him once again as the highest in the land. Not Edward's highest adviser, highest in the land. The man who would tell the king what to do, effectively for Warwick to rule through Edward. The second was to get rid of his hated enemies, the clan that in Warwick's worldview had put themselves between him and his protégé, the men he'd named in his open letter. Now Herbert was already dead, and now the hunt was on for the fugitives. Rivers, his son John Woodville, his brother Scales, and for Stafford. In this second objective, Warwick was brutally successful. Rivers and John Woodville had fled towards Wales. Scales had fled into Norfolk, while Stafford had headed for his homelands in Somerset and Devon. 
within weeks. Rivers and John Woodville were discovered in Chepstow. They were taken to Kenilworth Castle and both beheaded. And so ends the chequered and rather colourful life of Earl Rivers. No one could accuse him of having a stay-at-home boring life. Stafford fared no better. He made it as far as Somerset when he was discovered. The locals took matters into their own hands and beheaded him on the spot. Only Scales evaded Warwick's clutches. But I would imagine Warwick would have been pretty pleased on the whole, not a bad haul. He'd made those Woodvilles pay for their presumption. Next up, the king. Edward had played his hand badly, it has to be said. But now his relaxed nature rather helped him. It's not possible to know if Edward had glimpsed the problems that Warwick would face, or if he just did what he had to do. But as far as we know, Edward simply smiled pleasantly, played along, and waited to see how things would unfold. So, within Warwick Castle, Warwick laid it out. Edward's job was to seal anything that he, Warwick, put in front of him. Edward agreed. So Warwick set about forming a government, rubbing his hands with glee. I imagine Warwick's arms covered little red marks as he pinched himself all day long to make sure he wasn't dreaming. It seriously could not have gone better. With Edward's seal, he appointed a new treasurer of England and a dozen officers of state. He used Edward's seal to summon a parliament to York, date set for September. Oh Lord, it was like taking candy off a baby. This was all going to be such fun. He had two kings now under his control, Henry and Edward. Really, he thought, they should give me a nickname. A kingmaker. Something like that. Hey, and name a board game after me. So hold that image of the smug and contented Warwick for a while in the high summer of 1469. OK? And now, let it go. Just as Warwick was going to have to let it go, as the wheels came off the plan. It wasn't immediately obvious what the problem was, or even that there was a problem. There was no revolt against Warwick's government, because there appeared to be no government. London went potty, wild rumours circulated everywhere, some loudly demanded the release of the king, others, Warwick supporters, assumed that since they'd won, they could now do exactly as they pleased, and a wave of violence and lawlessness swept the city. Warwick took Edward north to his lair at Middleham, and sent Clarence and George down to London to kick some sense into the royal council. Edward smiled politely and did what he was told. The Royal Council did precisely nothing. Now the Baronage joined in. Since there was no legitimate government, just two captive kings, this seemed like a good opportunity to settle a few old scores that the king's peace had stopped them settling before. Richard of Gloucester started a minor war with the Stanleys in Yorkshire. The Duke of Norfolk attacked and stole the Paston's manor and castle at Keister. On the northern marches, a Lancastrian rebellion flared up. Warwick's brother John Neville had not stirred to help him during the rebellion, and he didn't stir to help him now. The problem was, no one would respond to the king's directives when the king was a captive. As one writer put it, 
the Earl of Warwick found himself unable to offer an effective resistance. For the people, seeing their king taken as prisoner, refused to take notice of his proclamations. Essentially, Warwick's rule had no legitimacy. But surely, thought Warwick, people will respond to the threat of a Lancastrian rebellion. And so, in the king's name, he issued orders to raise an army to march north to crush it, happily sealed by the relaxed and smiling king. But all Warwick could hear was the sound of tumbleweed blowing through the musty yards. It all got so desperate that Warwick, Clarence and the Archbishop had to cancel that Parliament they'd planned. So now Warwick had a couple of options. He could go the whole hog, kill the king and declare the more pliant Clarence king instead. Now that sounds preposterous, but it wasn't so potty. There had been rumours for a while that Edward was a bastard. In fact, as part of the rebellion, Warwick had revived those rumours all over again. The rumours that Cecily Neville had confessed, broken down in tears and confessed her guilt. Really doesn't sound very much like Cecily Neville, I have to say. Alternatively, Warwick could let Edward off the leash a bit and show him to the people. Not an attractive thought, but maybe not the worst option. After all, the current approach simply wasn't working. And thinking about it, Warwick had removed many of the people he objected to, and hopefully he'd demonstrated to the king that Warwick had far too much power and influence to be just put aside. So, he'd give the king a little rope, allow him to show his face, but he'd lay down the ground rules, and once he'd achieved his objective of raising an army to crush this latest Lancastrian threat, he'd pull the king back in again. It'd be fine. And so, Edward was allowed to enter York in royal state, talking freely with everyone, and acting for all the world like a free man. Reassured that the king was safe, now soldiers accepted the summons that Warwick had sent out. Warwick promptly crushed the rebellion with ease. Edward was all smiles and amiability, reassuring Neville that he brought him no ill will whatsoever. With the same happy smile, Edward set up court in Pontefract. And it's now that he slipped the noose Warwick had set on his neck, however loosely it now sat. Before Warwick could object, he suddenly found that all the major magnates and barons were appearing to attend the new court. People like Buckingham, Arundel, and a number of more minor barons. And then William Hastings and Richard turned up. Everything was friendly, everything outwardly relaxed, but Warwick realised he could do nothing. Zip. And when Edward calmly announced that he was returning with his court to London, there was equally absolutely nothing Warwick or Clarence could do, except try to look pleased and nonchalant, and try to pretend that it had been their idea all along and they were very happy with the whole thing. Edward set off with a large retinue and the Archbishop of York and the Earl of Oxford were charged by Warwick with catching up with them and entering London together with them to keep up appearances. So they charged on down to Hertfordshire only to receive a firm message from the King that they should stay right where they were. If the King wanted them, he'd send for them. Don't hold your breath. There could be nothing clearer. Within a few months, without a shot being fired, the king was free. 
Warwick had failed, and in the most astounding way, he'd failed by winning. Warwick and Clarence would have felt frighteningly exposed. What were the king's real intentions now? For how long would they be safe? Surely, surely, behind the smiles, the king would want revenge, and revenge with utensils. There's a really nice quote in one of the Paston letters. John Paston, writing to his mother from London. The king himself hath good language of the lords of Clarence and Warwick, saying they be his best friends. But his household men have other language. That sort of summed it up. And yet, and yet, Edward was careful, gave every impression of wanting reconciliation. OK, he made sure it was crystal clear that he was in control. He removed many of Warwick's political appointments. He welcomed back Lord Scales, Anthony Woodville, now to be the new Earl Rivers. But he made no move against Warwick or Clarence. He did have a big problem in Wales, where the Herbert family had basically been destroyed by Warwick, and his solution was the reliable Richard of Gloucester, who was given a prior of offices in Wales and essentially established for a while as the king's representative there. Edward did a bit of jiggery-pokery with the Neville clan to boot. John Neville was something of a poser for Edward. On the one hand, he'd been a real star for him, refusing to join up with his brother, crushing the popular revolts of Robin of Reedsdale. But on the other hand, he was a Neville. Once a Neville, always a Neville. And without the Percys up there in the north and the northeast anymore, there was simply no one to challenge them, no one to counteract the weight of the Neville power. And so in 1470, Edward replaced John Neville in the marches with Henry Percy. The Percy heir released from the tower, and the Percys reclaimed their title of the Earl of Northumberland. Well, you don't have to be a medieval expert or have an IQ the size of the Empire State Building to see that wouldn't help foster loyalty to the crown for John Neville. But in fact, Edward looked to have worked this through with him, or at least he made strenuous efforts to keep him happy. Neville was given lands in Devon from the dead Stafford and Courtenays. His eldest daughter, Elizabeth, was betrothed to John Neville's son, and Neville's son was made Duke of Bedford. Basically, Edward was trying to rearrange his chess pieces, balance interests and factions in the North and in Wales in particular. Whether it would work or not, well, we'll soon see. As far as Warwick and Clarence were concerned, this was all just window dressing. There was no way they were going to be reconciled, no way at all. The new strategy was to replace Edward with Clarence. The trouble was that Edward was now looking out for them. He wasn't going to be fooled quite so easily again. And it was clear to everyone that Warwick and Clarence were motivated by naked ambition. No one was going to be fooled by any claims of good governance and helping out the common man from his oppressions, yada, yada, yada. Hate it or loathe it, everyone was clear. Warwick's last attempt had been a coup. No other magnates had been part of it. The Clarence would be a great king because Edward is a bastard approach would be even more see-through. But their chance came remarkably quickly with a revolt in Lincolnshire. The revolt by Richard Wells has been seen as a Lancastrian revolt, but really it was probably originally no more than one of those vicious struggles for local supremacy. 
when one baron, Thomas Burr, attacked another, Richard Wells. In the very same month, March 1470, down in Gloucestershire there was another example, the Battle of Nibley Green between the Barclays and the Talbots. Let's say that one more time. Nibbly green. Nibbly, nibbly, nibbly. Really, I can't imagine what you listeners from outside England must think of us. What an ill-disciplined and violent lot we were. Anyway, the difference for our Lincolnshire one was that Edward decided to personally intervene. He declared his intention to march north with an army and summoned Wells to appear before him to answer for his actions. Warwick furiously sent notes to Wells that he would come to his help, raise another army, and that between them they would utterly destroy the king. It all went horribly wrong, and you have to wonder at Warwick's desperation that he would move so quickly and opportunistically without having lined everything up. And it probably also owes an awful lot to a king now in a very different frame of mind, wary, decisive and energetic. So, briefly, here's what happens. Edward called Wells to his side to submit, and Wells' father went and was pardoned, but the son stayed behind to build up the rebel army and combine with Warwick at Leicester. The idea was that Edward would charge up to Lincolnshire all fire and fury and suddenly find his enemy in his rear, cutting him off from London. Edward was wise to this little game. As his army went north, he sent to Wells Jr. that if he wasn't at his side pronto, his father was toast. Wells Jr. panicked and turned back from his march to Leicester to attack the king instead. Sadly, he was surprised at a place near Oakham in England's smallest county, Rutland. Maltham in Parvo. So much in so little. A county with the most delicious ironstone villages if you're planning to visit, and also England's largest man-made body of water, Empingham Reservoir. Also, I suspect with a claim to be the Retirement County of England, but that's a guess. I tell you all of this at the request of Rutland Weekend Television, obviously. Anyway, onwards. It was near Empingham, for whom the idea of hosting England's largest man-made body of water was nothing more than a distant dream and the talk of cranks and dreamers at this point, that Edward came on Wells' army. Ordering the execution of Wells Senior, he attacked it was a largely one-sided affair and mostly notable for what it revealed about Warwick and Clarence's loyalty to Edward. As Wells's men advanced, they shouted, A Warwick! A Clarence! Which was something of a giveaway. When they ran away, which was very shortly after the advancing stage, they tore off their coats and insignia of Warwick and Clarence because, as I say, it was a bit of a giveaway. As a result, the battle has gone down in history as the Battle of Loosecoat Field. Wells Jr. was found dead on the field, and so it was a bad day for Mrs. Wells. In his helmet were found a whole bunch of incriminating letters from Warwick, which I find interesting. Not that there were incriminating letters, but that he kept them in his helmet. Was there room? Was this normal? Did people keep anything else there, like, I don't know, a sandwich or a piece of cake, when there was a lull in the battle? Wouldn't the letters get terribly smelly and sweaty? Anyway, interesting. Edward sent his man to Leicester to tell Warwick and Clarence to get to his side this instant, now, this minute, maintenant, to explain themselves. Warwick and Clarence readily agreed. Of course, of course, delighted, right behind you. Instead, as soon as Edward's messenger's back was turned, 
They legged it, as you would. Still, Warwick seemed to have hoped for success, because he fled north to Manchester, hoping to enlist the support of the Stanleys, who had promised to support him. Now, the Stanleys had been born trimmers and would die trimmers. They sent Warwick away with a flea in his ear. Come back when you can't lose and not before. No way we're helping you in this dire situation. Hop it. Go on, on your bike. John Neville was no help whatsoever either and even suppressed some local rebellions that had risen in Warwick's favour. And meanwhile, Edward and his army were right behind Warwick and Clarence with the northern nobility flooding in to assure Edward of their loyalty. And so now we are back in flight mode. I'm back to the pictures in the Ladybird history of Clarence and Warwick in full flight, with the mud flying around their ears from their horses' hooves, with the King's men on the horizon. All terribly exciting and inaccurate. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Actually, at very least... Warwick and Clarence had with them the Countess of Warwick and his daughters, Isabel now 19 and Anne now 14. Can't imagine how all this seemed to them. Did they enjoy the thrill of it, or wish their father would settle for a quieter life? Poor Isabel, Clarence's wife, was probably seven or eight months pregnant, and the journey in unsprung carts over the mud of Western England cannot have been a pleasant experience, and could have been even more effective than a curry for bringing on the birth. But they made it to Exeter, and there Warwick had a substantial flotilla of ships waiting. And so into the Channel they sailed, a few days ahead of the vengeful Edward, who arrived in Exeter to find them gone. Warwick was captain of Calais, and probably expected to hole up there to consider his future. But when he arrived there, the gates remained closed. Even Warwick's reputation was not enough to ignore the commands of the king and the threats of the Duke of Burgundy. And in the harbour, a different drama unfolded. 
Isabel Neville went into childbirth, but tragically the baby was born stillborn and buried at sea. Still, Warwick was not without friends, and Warwick was not a man to sit on his hands. Usually, he used his bottom for that. But nor was he a man to wait around for something to happen, and as his small fleet sailed off the Normandy coast, he was joined by a squadron of ships that had deserted the fleet Edward had sent to get him. The fleet was led by the attractively named Bastard of Falkenberg. Unattractive, maybe, but descriptive, since he was indeed just that, the illegitimate son of Lord Falkenberg. With these extra forces, Warwick was able to do what he did best, indulge in a little light piracy. He duly fell on some Flemish merchant ships, which had a double benefit, giving him a bit of extra cash to keep his sailors happy and irritating Edward's ally, the Duke of Burgundy. But all of this wasn't really a long-term solution. The long-term solution was Louis, King of France, Louis the Spider, as he was also known, who could not fail to see the most golden of opportunities to at very least cause the English some pain, and at best to see his friend Warwick win control of the English throne. And so Louis and Warwick, with Clarence in tow, met to discuss what could be done. A potential invasion of England was one thing, but Warwick knew now that victory would not be enough. As swashbuckling as he was, the English wouldn't accept his authority as king. And who knows if they'd accept Clarence either. And so was born an absolutely outrageous plan, an unholy plan. A plan so cunning that in the words of Blackadder you could put a tail on it. A plan that offered a way back for Warwick. The plan, ladies and gentlemen, was for Warwick, the destroyer of the Lancastrian dynasty, Warwick, the killer of a list of Lancastrian lords as long as your arm, for Warwick to team up with the woman who probably hated him more than any other person in the world. And there was a cue. Yes, I speak of, who else? Margaret of Anjou. The plan was this. Warwick would give his second daughter Anne in marriage to Margaret and Henry's son, Prince Edward. Warwick would then lead an invasion of England to put the rightful and lawful King of England back on his throne, to rule again as Henry VI. Incroyable mais vrai, ladies and gentlemen, seems scarcely credible. But this indeed was the plan. Nothing could illustrate more clearly the utterly cynical search for power that runs like a broad black thread through the walls of the roses. There was a problem, of course. What on earth would Margaret think? of the concept of teaming up with the hated Warwick. Margaret and Edward were living in relative penury at one of her father's castles in Lorraine, in the east of France. They had been largely ignored and pushed into the background by Louis. While he wanted to find a peace with England, Margaret was an embarrassment, and he ruthlessly refused to listen to her pleas. Edward, meanwhile, was 16 years old in 1470. He doesn't come across as a particularly likeable young man, but to be fair, there's very little we know of him. Just one description from a Milanese ambassador. He described Edward's love of riding, fighting, jousting, which is hardly unusual, but also that he already talks of nothing but cutting off heads or making war, as if he had everything in his hands or was the god of battle or the peaceful occupant of the throne from which we can guess that he didn't lack confidence, 
was inclined to violence and had a head filled with his mother's hopes and fears and attitudes rather than his father's. Unless his father was in fact the dead Somerset, of course, rather than Henry. Despite Margaret's absolute determination to see her son win his rightful inheritance, she did not receive Louis' suggestion at all well. From the start, she resolutely and absolutely set her face against any such idea. She sent Louis the Spider King away with a flea in his ear. But Louis was called the Spider King for a good reason, and he would not let this particular fly off his web. He knew that Margaret really had no options. She had been refused for ten years. If she gave up this chance, who knows when it might come again, if at all. And so he worked on her for days, until she reluctantly agreed in a limited way. OK, she'd work with Warwick, snake though he is. But forget the very thought of her wonderful son marrying into that nest of vipers, and Warwick's hideous 14-year-old daughter Anne was clearly nowhere near good enough for her son. But Louis relentlessly insisted. No marriage, no army, no army, no kingdom. Louis insisted for 15 long days. And gritting her teeth, Margaret eventually bowed to the inevitable and gave in. Good luck to Anne Neville with that mother-in-law. With the details agreed, it remained for Louis to bring Warwick and Margaret together. Now that really must have been quite an occasion. On the 22nd of July, 1470, Margaret and Warwick's parties rode separately into the town of Angers. And that evening, Louis led Warwick into a hall to meet the fury of the woman he'd chased from England to obscurity and poverty in eastern France. She made him pay. Warwick went down on his knees in front of the woman who'd murdered his father and uncle to beg her pardon for his treachery against his king and queen. Margaret kept him there and gave her hated enemy a thorough and comprehensive tongue-lashing. She ripped into him, pointing out in no uncertain terms that Warwick had injured her as a queen, but he had dared to defame her reputation as a woman by diverse false and malicious slander. But eventually, after 15 minutes feeling like a prune, Warwick was allowed to stand up and the most unlikely partnership was sealed with the betrothal of Anne Neville and Edward Plantagenet in the cathedral in Angers, while Warwick and Louis and Margaret swore on a piece of the true cross that they would never betray each other. Well, as my grandmother would have said, I never did. Even by the standards of the day, this marriage was the most comprehensively cynical action by any father, delivering his daughter into the hands of his most hated adversary. Even contemporaries, well used to brutal marriage politics, were shocked. Mistrust continued to rule. The Treaty of Angers made it quite clear that Anne would be delivered immediately to her future mother-in-law, but that no marriage would take place until Warwick had landed in England with an army and had recovered the throne. Neither she nor her son Edward would go anywhere near the place until Warwick had proved himself and secured the realm. This, it was to turn out, was a piece of mistrust that was to have major consequences for the conspirators. Spare a thought for poor Anne, then. Who knows what she had to endure?
Spare a thought also for Clarence, I guess. He looked seriously green and hairy now, a real gooseberry. Once Warwick's passport to the throne, he was now just a hideous embarrassment for all concerned and kept safely in the back room. It can't have been comfortable for him either, though I'm not sure he's worth a lot of sympathy. However, the deal was set, and on the 9th of September 1470, Warwick set sail from Normandy in pursuit once more of the power and of the glory. With him went Clarence, of course, but also the Earl of Oxford and the ubiquitous Jasper Tudor, Earl of Pembroke, who must be one of the few aristocrats in the Wars of the Roses to win a loyalty award. Edward, meanwhile, stayed safely with Mum. Margaret had proved several times that at critical moments she shied away from the right decision, and here was another one. But never mind, the Enterprise was launched. The Enterprise was not launched without preparation. Warwick had been busy, as busy as a busy bee writing to the folks back home whose support for Edward he thought would be dicey. Lord Stanley, the Earl of Shrewsbury, but principally his brother John Neville. John, who was now Marquis Montague, having been replaced by Percy as Earl of Northumberland. John, who could well have been unhappy about the swap of some lands in Dorset for the wide estates of the King of the North and Warwick had also written to a relative in the north called Fitzhugh. Warwick had plans, secret plans and clever tricks. Meanwhile, Edward would have to have been something of a turnip not to notice that Warwick was plotting. Edward was in fact later accused of being a turnip, that he just sat around in far, far away eating bonbons and relaxing quietly, rather than preparing for war that he ignored the many and various warnings of the Duke of Burgundy, who had no desire to see the French king's friend on the English throne. But in fact, this doesn't seem to be fair. Edward did everything he could, in fact. He had an army in place, he'd secured Ireland and Calais with loyal men, he'd warned the counties of the south to be ready to muster when the invasion came. An Anglo-Burgundian fleet cruised the Channel and kept any French fleet from supporting an invasion. But in the way of these things, they missed Warwick's fleet when he went, and by the 13th of September, Warwick had landed on the Devon coast in the southwest of England and raised their banner in the name of Henry VI. Now, true enough, you'd expect Edward to be all over him like a rash. But Edward was nowhere to be found, because he, in fact, he was in Far, Far Away, otherwise known as the North of England. Warwick's brother-in-law, Fitzhugh, had helpfully caused a rebellion. Edward had agonised, dithered, weebled, then shot north to deal with it, and so created the space into which Warwick then charged. As he moved north and east, Warwick was joined by Stanley and Shrewsbury, and his army was greeted with enthusiasm for the great hero. Edward marched south to meet him, waiting for the faithful John Neville and his key men to arrive. As the Titans marched towards each other, ahead of them went a fan of agents to the towns and manors of England demanding support. So, on the 21st of September, for example, the city fathers of Salisbury found themselves in a spot of bother. One John Pike, an agent of Warwick and Clarence, had arrived 
and demanded they provide forty armed men. At the very same time, one Thomas St. Ledger arrived in town, demanding exactly the same thing. But he was a squire of the body for King Edward. The city fathers dithered. They tried to compromise, offering Warwick's men forty marks instead, but neither side would compromise or back down, and in the end, the fighting men voted themselves with their feet, and they marched to join Warwick and Clarence. Edward left York, hurrying south and sending John Neville orders to join him. When he reached Doncaster, John Neville was not far behind, and Edward's army would be complete. Meanwhile, as Warwick and Clarence marched north, one chronicle reported, "So then there drew to him much people, or they came to Coventry. They were thirty thousand." John Neville was just a few miles north of Edward when he stopped, and he drew up his men and he addressed all of them. Edward, he declared, had forfeited his right to his John Neville's allegiance by giving away his title and wide lands in Northumberland for a few feeble fields and shacks in Devon and some weird title no one knew the meaning of. Join me, my men. Let's march to the side of the Lord of the North, Warwick. And so that is exactly what they did. Now this was a serious setback for Edward, and no mistake. But Edward still had the colonel of an army, and he was faced by two adversaries in Warwick and Clarence that just a few months ago had completely failed to raise more than an eyebrow in two attempts at rebellion. Edward was a popular king; people would come to him. By this stage, Edward was at Nottingham. The same chronicle recorded: King Edward lay at Nottingham and sent for lords and other men, but there came to him so little people that he was not able to make a field against them. Essentially, Edward legged it. He, his brother Richard of Gloucester. William Hastings, the Earl Rivers, legged it to Lynn on the North Norfolk coast, and then by ship to Bruges, and the protection of Charles, Duke of Burgundy. It is a really rather remarkable collapse. The story usually written doesn't really explain it. If there is an explanation, it's a kind of implication that John Neville's army was larger than Edward's, and Edward had to run from him. But actually, the key thing that seems to have happened was just an extraordinary collapse in support for the king. To go back to that story about the competing agents in Salisbury, it seems to be that Edward inexplicably just could not get his subjects to support him. When faced with the choice of Warwick and Edward, they'd chosen Warwick, and so Edward fled to fight another day. In London, the pregnant Elizabeth Woodville fled with her children to sanctuary in Westminster Abbey, and the way to London was now open for Warwick. All he had to do was reach out his hand and take the prize, which we'll hear about next time. For the moment, I have some donators to thank. To monthly donators, Jim Jubal. Matthew, Cool, Dan, Nancy, and Brad, and new donators John, Nicola, Stuart, Andrea, and Anthony. Thanks so much for your generosity. Now, don't forget 
the super cool shaving thing, cornerstone.co.uk forward slash history, or just go to my website where I'll provide a link. But mainly, thanks to everyone who's commented on the website, Facebook, iTunes, and all that sort of thing, and to all of you who listen in. Good luck, everyone, and have a great week.